Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I am your host for not only the advertising space, but the actual podcast. But before we get to that podcast, I just need to recognize one of our big old sponsors, one of our good friends, and that is Sig Sauer. Um, listen, we don't really have a script when we talk about SIG. Uh, we just talk about personal experience. And I'll say that I've been using SIG Sauer firearms for quite some time. I've gone up to the SIG Sauer Academy a whole bunch of times. I love that training facility. They are really, really top-notch instructors up there. And I will say that they are uh, the type of instructors that will tell you there's like five different ways to do something, not the way. And there are really no egos when it comes to you know the way that they teach. Now, as far as the products, I mean, oh my gosh, uh, you can look at pretty much anyone at the company and, and find Sig Sauer products on them, whether we're talking about Sig Sauer ammo or Sig Sauer uh, firearms or Sig Sauer suppressors or whatever it is, I will say that they are a fantastic company. When you go up to Sig, this is an unsolicited advertisement, by the way, I'm going to put this in right now. Uh, eat at Goody Coles. It's a fantastic barbecue joint up there. Uh, I just don't recommend that you guys eat at Goody Coles and then go back to the rifle deck and lay on the, the rifle deck and and go into food coma when it's like 90 degrees out. Um, and if you're going to eat at Goody Coles and if you're gonna be up there for multiple days, I always say stop and stay at the Exeter Inn. It's a fantastic hotel, uh, great people. It feels like uh, you know one of those small independent hotels that you really feel like they, they know your name, they, they recognize you when you come down for food. Check it out. Guys, SIG is more than just a firearms company. It's all about the experience up there. I guarantee you're gonna have a great time. So. Uh, with that being said, guys, let's get right into this podcast. So here we go. Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I'm going to be your host for this episode. My name is Kevin Estella. I can't even talk this morning. Definitely had a late night last night packing for my move to North Carolina. But uh, I'm excited about this podcast because the man who joins me today is someone I've learned a lot from over the past 15 years. And it doesn't even seem like 15 years because, you know, he and I have become good friends and I've just learned a lot. Uh, in 2007, I started training in Sayak Kali. And for those of you that have read my book, you know that I make reference to feeder mindset and you've probably seen Sayak Kali reference there. And if you're in the martial arts world, you might know the name. I first learned about this Filipino martial arts system about four years, uh, you know, you know, four years earlier um, when I first saw the hunted. So again, 2007 is when I started, 2003 is when I first learned about it. And in the special features, my guest uh, on the podcast is shown demonstrating knife combatives along with another Tuhan, and that Tuhan's name is uh, Rafael Kayanin. I was immediately intrigued by the movement of these guys, how aggressive everything was, and being half Filipino, just the connection to the ethnic roots. So my guest, uh, two on Tom Kyer, and I would eventually meet in 2009. This is two years after I started training at an instructor seminar in PA. And he'd go on to teach me more than I could possibly list in this intro about fight math, long range shooting and ballistics, knife design, pistol marksmanship, fight choreography, <laughs> grappling, strategy, tactics. I mean, on and on and on. Um, I mean, he, he's a wealth of information. When you first meet uh, two on Tom Kyer, you're going to notice his physicality. The guy's a, a beast of a man. But if you only see that, you miss the intellect that has always impressed me. So we're going to kick off this podcast with a warm introduction to my friend, instructor, and SIOC Tactical Group Director, Tuhan Tom Kyer. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you uh, for having me on. Oh, I, I'm so excited to have you on. This one has been a long time coming because I've had a lot of people say like, you know, where are you learning all this stuff from? Right. I mean, I'm a civilian 
you know, I, and I join a company that's run primarily by, by military guys. And yet, you know, a lot of the the strategy or the lingo or whatever, and just like the mindset and, and everything, I, I send it back to Sayoc, you know, and, and you're a huge part of that. So I, I'm excited to let the listeners meet you and hear from you and, and kind of get an idea of where I learned so much of who I am today. Right on. Well, I appreciate it. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, uh, I'm always interested in, um, in furthering the conversation about so many of the different topics that we commonly, uh, get into. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So let, let's start off with your background. Cause I know you've lived in a lot of different places. Uh, I mean, you, you grew up in a, a pretty large family, but you moved around a lot and you've had a lot of careers. Can you kind of just highlight some of those? Yeah. You know, I, um, I was not the, um, model, uh, student when I was in high school, I was definitely, um, you know, I would say had an attitude problem, but, um, you know, I was very into <clears throat> sports that were like combative sports. So I boxed and wrestled, um, played football and, and, you know, that kind of stuff was, was very interesting to me, but, you know, um, school was not really my focus. And, you know, that's one of the things I look back on. I try to coach my, my own kids now about, you know, uh, keeping your options, uh, open. I don't know if I would have done anything different. I don't think I would have, but, but still, you know, uh, had a, um, couldn't wait to get out of school and didn't, wasn't interested in going to school after high school. And, um, my father's an iron worker and, uh, taught me the trade of working with metal and, you know, welding, cutting, fabricating, laying out you know the 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 process also machining um so i went into that kind of work you know i worked in steel fabrication shops doing structural steel work um and you know moved around uh doing that my my whole thing was as long you know i could just grab my welding shield and pretty much show up any city in the United States and I would have a job 24 hours later. Uh, so I, I felt a lot of freedom, uh, with that. So I, I moved around. I, I worked in, as a welder in, in new England, uh, and, uh, went out to Oregon, worked in the, uh, fabrication business there, building logging equipment out in Oregon in the lumber industry, went down, to California in Alameda and worked uh, on ships in the shipyard, uh, fabricating and welding. And uh, was in Colorado, worked worked in Colorado for a while. So anyway, I did I did a lot of moving around and um, and mostly uh, as a welder, you know. And um, you know I enjoyed that. Um, I, uh, when I was in the Philly area, uh, and I was working also as a bouncer, uh, doing a lot of work in, uh, after hours. So I worked during the day as a welder and then I'd work in clubs at night. And, um, 
you know, my, uh, I was still attracted to, to, uh, violence and, uh, to the adrenaline dump of, uh, fighting. So, you know, spent a lot of time doing that. Um, learned a lot, got in a lot of fights. Um, it was a good place to experiment and a good place to, you know, to test yourself to some degree, you know, depending on, on, you know, it's a dangerous place to test yourself because you get stabbed or shot, which I, uh, both happened to me, but, um, but I would say for, uh, for an 18, 19, 20 year old, um, it was good. It was good for me. You know, you know, I think about what you just said with taking that skill set and traveling anywhere. And there are so many kids these days that will leave high school. They'll go off to maybe a trade school or they'll go off to college more, more likely in a college. And they tend to put themselves, they paint themselves in a corner with where they can practice what they've been educated or, or trained to do. But I just heard Mike Rowe on a podcast or on an interview on the news. He said, right now, the number one trade, if you want to be able to write your own paycheck is plumbing, you know, and I'm like, that like in retrospect, there were a lot of guys I know that they, they got degrees that they couldn't use, you know, like, yeah, I mean, if you, if you do something maritime, chances are you're probably going to have to live in a coastal city. You can't travel anywhere you want, um, unless you go into academia, but, uh, you know, that, that whole idea of learning a career, I mean, we talk about self-reliance in a lot of different ways, but that's, that's the epitome of self-reliance is being able to, to say, I'm setting up here. I do not need an employer or I don't need to, to stick with just this one company or one field. I can go anywhere I want and do this because I've got a skill set, um, yeah. which is pretty powerful. Yeah, I think hundred percent you're, uh, you're right on there. And you know, when we talk about self-reliance, which we should be talking about, everyone should be talking about it because it's something that, uh, it's, has gone, you know, to some degree out of fashion. Uh, but you know, a lot of guys who are preppers or people who are trying to prepare for things, uh, they're looking at the hard goods, right? Oh yeah. And, uh, the software is more important than the hardware because if you have a trade or a skill, you can fix like, you know, I worked on cars and, you know, built race cars, but also, um, you know, learned how to fix small engines, learned how to do that stuff just by being around the trades you end up uh if you're if you're interested in learning you end up learning more than just the 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 skills that you have for your trade you know you're around other craftsmen you're around other tradesmen um but when we talk about being prep prepped you know uh those skills are just as important as having rice and beans uh put up you know and and ammo you know, so more important, I would say. You know, um, I was going to say, uh, I was going to say, uh, you know, you'd appreciate this last night and the night before I was training with one of the, the guys that's in the SIOC training group out here in South Salt Lake. And he, uh, he walked me through the reloading process for 308 and yeah. it was awesome, right? To go out, you know, get, collect the brass that I, I had shot the, the week before bring it over yep. to his house, you know, pop the primers up, put the new primers in, prep all the casings, all that stuff. And then to, to dial in the formula that we used and get the exact feet per second that I wanted, like, you know, it was just yep. another example of, of being useful, right? Like learning yeah. how to, how to do something that maybe someday there will be a shortage of brass, 
you know, but oh, n- absolutely. Yeah. Cause absolutely. I, I know, I know you're a reloader. Um, so yeah, that, that was something I was like, I want to cross this one off my bucket list. And, and now I'm starting to look up cause we did everything on a single stage, but now I'm like, I want to look at the next level, right? You know, yeah. The, the well, I'll, uh, you know, as you as you know, I I have a, a small reloading company. And, <laughs> yeah, you say that modestly, uh, right? <laughs> and, and stuff like that. But the thing is, uh, I still have uh, a whole box of your three hundred eight brass that you dropped off. <laughs> yeah, remember I re- that? I remember that. That was a while back, <laughs> a year ago or years ago. But the thing is, I have it sitting up there, and I have your I have your name on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, you should come up sometime because. You know, here's the great thing about like anything that you get into, you know, there are levels to everything. And I think everyone should have a base level for construction, uh, auto and small engine mechanic uh, work, uh, maintenance, but also repairing um, metal work. Like everyone should know how to run a torch and weld and stick something together if they need to, you know, Um and the reloading is something I think should, should, you know, we have our, we have years and years to acquire these simple, basic skills. Um, and reloading is, is one of those. It's, it's not complicated. If you're not looking for uh, ultra high precision or you're not doing something exotic, uh, it's, it's something very doable for anyone who wants to get into it, you know, um, so I think that's good. And, and if you're, if you want to go deeper into it, you know, there's love, like when I shot competitively thousand yard bench rest and, you know, bench rest shooting, uh, at a thousand yards is, you know, we're talking about precision and, you know, I did 17 different prep state prep operations on my brass, uh, um, that's that's a lot of that's more than you need to to make it go bang you know um but that's that's if you if you ever you know want to get into it deeper you know we can go we can go deeper into all that stuff and if you want to look at progressives um you know i have eight progressive presses you know we can i have one set up for 308 and we can talk about the whole you know how to get it set up you know i have some that are motorized but they're greatly overrated you know but uh yeah you know that's something that we should uh we should think about doing sometime you know yeah for sure and, and now that i'll be yeah. on the the east coast in north carolina i'll it's an eight hour drive up to yep. your area um yeah i kind of want to talk about like how we cross paths and then also like your background because so 2009 i mentioned it in the intro i attend the instructors, you know, seminar, we're down in the Poconos and and you come in, you were driving, I think the expedition at the time. Um, and Manong Rich and Manang Su, my, my two instructors from Connecticut, they're like, Oh, when you meet two on Tom, you're going to know you're, you're meeting two on Tom. He's, they even joked around. They're like, Oh yeah, he's the small one in his family. And then I met your brother and I was like, damn, they are big in that family. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. but we didn't really, we didn't really have an interaction until, the uh the first apprentice weekend that i was down in philly and we were outside on on pomonatuan's deck and i remember you asked the simple question everyone just kind of froze 
and you shot me this glaring look and I'm like, oh man, I screwed up. I, I did something bad or, or <laughs> I was like, damn, two on Tom hates me, you know, but, uh, but it wasn't, yeah. it was more like, it was again, with that whole tribal concept, it's like you were, it's kind of like when a, when a parent slaps you and says, I'm doing this cause I love you. Um, you were upset with us because we should have gotten something that was going to help us, you know? Um, and that's, that's the beauty of, of, of our system. I think is that, you know, we've got that, that family connection and everyone speaks the same language and there's really no infighting in our tribe. Um, right. But how did, how did you, can you just like set the record straight? How did you, uh, join Saya Cause I remember you said in one interview, it might've been with master Chim or, or one of our guys, you said like you were going down a, a bad path and Pamana Tuan set you straight. Yes. Yes. You know, it was, um, it was a time where I was getting heavier into, you know, the darker side of things. Um, I, uh, you know, I was bouncing in bars. I was fighting a lot. Um, and, you know, my training partner, Colin Ryan, uh, who went on to become a police officer. Uh, but at that time we were, we were two, you know, 20, 21 year old kids. And, um, I was going uh, a bad, you know, I was, I was, I was involved in, you know, violence for hire kind of stuff. And, um, so you know, he was involved heavily into martial arts and, um, he was like, Hey, I want to, I want to get into, uh, Kali, you know? And, um, and he told me a little bit about it and he needed a training partner and uh, we had wrestled in high school and done everything, uh, growing up. And, uh, we, and, um, you know, he had been doing some training and I, I ended up getting into doing some training with him with uh, Mark Wiley, who's, uh, you know, pretty prominent uh, Filipino martial arts instructor and uh, someone that we went to high school with. And, um, and through Mark, I heard about Chris Sayak and he spoke very highly of, uh, of Tuan Sayak and, and, um, you know, so we got an opportunity to meet him and at a, a grand opening of a martial arts school. And um, I was, you know, Colin and I were already, you know, decided to go down the path of, of learning uh, Filipino martial arts. And uh, we had studied with Mark for a while. And then we had an opportunity to study with uh, with uh, Tuan Chris. And um, so it was, uh, you know, we got, we told Mark that we, we, we wanted to study Sayak and he gave us, uh, his blessing to go and do that. And, um, you know, we, we got into it, you know? So the thing is, it was, uh, it was an eye-opening experience for us because it wasn't like anything that we had done before, you know, uh, Sayak was, not a public system at that time you could only get in um, with some reference and and then uh, you know you were accepted in or 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 you were told to go away you know and uh you know we eventually 
got into a situation where we could train with uh, two on Chris. And um, we would travel to New Jersey from Philadelphia. And uh, we were both working in bars and bouncing at that time. And, um, you know, uh, we would we would head up there after working in the bar. And, uh, you know, so we'd drive up in the morning. We'd get there and, and, and do class. Um, and, you know, it was it was intense. You know, it was dangerous. You know, we we left every single training event. Uh, we we left injured, hurt. Uh, there was a lot of contact, which we which we loved at the time. We were like we were into it. You know, bring your mouthpiece and and, uh, right. and let's go. So it was good. You know, but it wasn't for everyone. You know, I I, I which is why the class was small. You know. Um. But uh, uh, Juan Mark Conroy was was there at that time. Uh, Frank Ponce and um, and 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 Colin and myself and uh, and there and there was Tall Frank. I don't know Frank's last name. He, some of the guys stayed around. Some of the guys didn't. Right, obviously. You know, Tuhan Mark Conroy is from that generation, so he's still in the system. Uh, and everyone else is is out of the system. It's me, Colin, and uh, Tuhan Mark are, are still in the system at that. But, you know, it was tough, and it was good. It was good, great training, you know. Um, not something I could do again. That intensity of training I couldn't do right now, just physically, um, because I couldn't recover from the injuries, you know, you had to recover very quickly from your injuries because we had another class coming up. So, you know, you leave hurt, but you need to be functioning for the next, for the next class. So that would wear me down right now just because of recovery time. But some of those early um, training methods were, were pretty wild. I mean, to an outsider, they would say that's insane. Why would someone do that? But I mean, everything, there's a reason. We got sat down by people who cared about us and wanted to know, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> we see the, it, you know, it was like a scene from Fight Club uh, because, you know, you're walking around with, with, uh, you know, black eyes and, and, uh, you know, broken bones and in your hands and, you know, you're hurt, you know, but the thing is, Chuhan, knew that that's what these guys you know this is a young group of very physical guys who have backgrounds in boxing and wrestling and uh, you know are street fighters you know they're a bunch of street fighters what are you going to do with them you know and um and he honed us into more capable fighters you know and eventually uh, did a shift where we became teachers instead of fighters. And, and that was equally intense. Um, but in a different way, you know, but, uh, and we started getting into obviously the LOT training, logical order of thought and, you know, teaching methodologies and formulas for that. So it, uh, there was no, 
it didn't really let off into the intensity side. It just the way we were being intense. You know, the early classes we were doing flogging training, where we were we were absorbing a lot of pain that was artificial. I mean, it was you're standing there and someone's hitting you with a stick, and you're allowing that to happen in order for you to learn to control your adre- your adrenal uh, adrenal response um, in general, right? The general adrenal response. Most people have no idea the amount of control they can have over that response and how that can affect them during a fight, right? Most people who are under some type of adrenal response uh, are in the middle of skydiving or driving a race car or in a fight or whatever. In other words, they're not able to focus consciously on the processes that are going through their body, right? So the lack of ability to control your adrenal response leads to a lot of people becoming physically uh, clumsy or spastic um, to having a, uh, a tacky psyche uh, response where there's a time, uh, slowing of time apparently there's auditory exclusion, there's tunnel vision. These all go back to the adrenal response. All of these things So you just cut out a little bit. You just cut out like the last 15 seconds. We can probably edit it um, or we'll just run it. But you said uh, it was auditory exclusion, um, you know, and it, and it went from there. Yeah. So all of the different adrenal uh, responses, most of those are negative when you're in a flight. So um, tacky psyche, which is the, the change in, in the uh, feeling of time, right? Things seem to slow down. Um, auditory exclusion obviously affects the, the hearing. Uh Tunnel vision is the closing off of your peripheral vision, and it will close all the way down until people faint, right? So they, they, they actually pass out. So this happens to varying degrees with different situations and different people. But what if I said I want to mitigate all of that? You know, I, want, I don't want that to happen to you when you're in a life and death fight. Yeah, everyone's like, sure, that would be great. What? you have a pill I can take? No. Um, you're going to have to do in, uh, very intense training that's going to be very painful and uncomfortable. Uh, but at the end of it, you're going to be able to control yourself in those situations, uh, controlling your breath and, and all those things. So a lot of the training at that time was not just the technical aspects of using a blade and targeting and using a stick and uh, choking and punching and, and grappling, but but also how do you control yourself? Uh, how do you control your adrenal response? Um, all of those things were part of becoming the fighter that the fighters that uh, that Tuan was building at the time. You know, so um, it was definitely intense training and definitely not something I could do uh, now. Uh, but 
I'm glad I went through it. You know, it was, it was, it was really wild. And, um, you know, um, and then we shift it to becoming teachers, uh, not fighters anymore. But, but at first we were, we were just building fighters, you know, um, you mentioned something that I don't think I've ever referenced on, on the podcast and that's stick grappling. And, yes. uh, I'll, I'll just tell a quick story, uh, a story that makes me smile. Uh, 2011 or 2012, we're down in Florida. We're at another instructor seminar and you're like, I need a volunteer. And from our school, Manong Rich is always like, you better volunteer when someone says they need a volunteer. <laughs> so, uh, so my yeah. training partner, James, who was a power lifter, and then he leaned out and he just became like 225 of just rock, you know, solid yep. man. He's like, I'll do it. So you, you started stick grappling with him, showing on everyone. And you asked him at one point, you're like, are you okay? And he's like, I'm good. And you're like, cause I can feel the bone through your arm with this stick. And then, yeah. uh, later on we went out for, for dinner and on the drive out I, in the rental car, I'm like, James, how you feeling? And he's like, well, I can't, you know, and he, he had, didn't have a voice. Cause at one point you had put the the butt end of the stick into his throat and he, he had too much pride to say that it was hurting, you know, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, yeah, can you, can you explain briefly like what the whole concept of stick grappling is? Um, because yeah. I, I haven't I, mentioned that in the past. Yeah. I mean, stick grappling is something I think it's amazing to me that it's not more commonly sought after or looked at because, and it might just be the domain specificity. In other words, people, sit inside their own uh, kind of uh, echo chamber to some degree where the grapplers do do the grappling and the stick guys do the do the uh, stick work and and uh, you know the mixture of some of these uh, martial arts extremely effective you know because when you gain leverage that you can get with a stick but you also have a very solid knowledge for uh, the mechanics of grappling, you know, and you put those two things together. It, it's, it's an amazing force multiplier. Um, number one, a light stick. And I mean, you know, a, uh, you know, a one inch in diameter dowel of wood. Um, unless it's a hardwood it's not really going to be doing too much damage to someone uh if that person is also combative you know like obviously you come up behind someone and hit them with you know a a, a dowel that you would find in a closet for a coat rack or something like that um yeah you can hurt them you know uh, you could hit someone with a mop handle and, you know, hurt him for sure. But if he's fighting back against you and he's aware that you're there, and we'll say that these two people are, are relatively equal in other aspects, except one has a stick. Pretty hard to, to uh, it's pretty hard to kill the person, you know. Yeah, you can beat him up. You give him some bruises, but you know if he covers his head, which he's going to do, eh, you know, you're you're going to put some lumps on his head. Maybe you're going to definitely put lumps on his arms and hands. But if he wants to, he could plow right through that. He could shoot a double leg, you know, unless you hit him perfectly on his temple, 
or on the base of the of the skull, he's going to have some lumps and then he's going to get a hold of you. And then you're in a wrestling match and you can't swing your stick. And, you know, like if someone pulls out a stick and they want to confront me, I will blast right through that. I won't even, I don't even care about it. It means nothing to me. You know, there are people who will give that stick respect because they don't want to get hit with the stick, like the pain of it or the perceived uh, power of that stick. Certainly not a rattan stick. I mean, that's like a joke. You know, you come at me with a rattan stick. I'm, I'm shooting a double leg and, and mounting you and, and punching your front of your head through the back of your head. So it's, it's like, that's not, that's not a real thing. You know what I mean? Unless the person is scared. Um, but not so with stick grappling. Suddenly we take that 30 inch rattan stick and you kill somebody with it. You know, like if, if you wrap that stick with leverage across someone's windpipe, you'll crush it. You'll break bones. You'll smash skull and jaw and, and, uh, and everything, but, but only grappling, right? Hitting someone with it, you're going to put some lumps on them, maybe. Um, and I'm talking about a combative situation, not someone sitting there blindfolded and you hit it with a stick. But um, stick grappling suddenly gives you the power to use that stick in a way which is very, very effective. And that's, that's, a, that's a major change from the way people m- most times would use that stick. And, um, it also counters the main problem when you're, when you have a stick and someone doesn't and you're fighting, as soon as that person gets in grappling range, they can shut down your ability to hit with that stick. And if that's your only mode of operation with that stick, it pretty much goes away the first time he makes a good entry on you. Um, cause he entangles the arms, trips you to the ground, whatever it is. And, and, uh, you know, you really have to keep your distance, um, uh, if you're only going to hit with a stick, you need to keep your distance and you need to hit them somewhere that's going to stop them. And unless you have a heavy stick or a pipe, um, you know, that's hard to do. So for that reason, stick grappling is something that people should look at, you know, because it's suddenly you're suddenly getting a chance to use that weapon in a way that's much more effective. Um, and, and they're not mutually exclusive, of course. You know, you can hit them, and when they close to try to keep you from hitting them, then you grapple them, and you become more effective. So, you know, that's that's kind of the the idea with stick grappling is you're going to have increased leverage. You're going to have the ability to you're going to have an extra hinge, an extra elbow, basically, um, that you can wrap uh, wrap this around certain limbs and joints and and obviously the throat and um heel hooks and everything that you would do as a grappler you can do better with a stick in your hand and you know so we're, we're talking about like a 30 inch rattan stick but a lot of those manipulations and chokes and submissions and and whatever you want to call yeah. them they can be done with a very short stick that just resembles absolutely. a stick tire iron absolutely you know absolutely. Or, or my favorite is that uh those souvenir baseball bats <laughs> Yeah. That you might get like one or two cracks off. of. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. And, you know, if you can get both hands 
any stick that you can you can grab with both hands. Uh, you know, if it's twice a palm length, uh, you can do some amazing stick grappling with. And, uh, uh, you know, so like, a, a, you know, a mag light type thing or uh, an asp that's closed, you know, not even open. Um, there's a lot of things that uh, that can that can be a very effective in, in that stick grappling uh, realm of, of of use. But um you know, people, it's not something widely taught. Um, so it, it, it's probably something that would be a big benefit for people who carry, you know, if someone carries a baton, a baton or a extendable baton, you know, an asp or some type, you know, a lot of law enforcement carry them, some bouncers carry them. Um, you know, they should all be studying stick grappling because, the biggest optic that's a problem for like law enforcement is, you know, having three law enforcement officers standing around someone and hitting them with a baton, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, it can be effective. Certainly with one of those batons, you can hit, you know, accurately and, and be very effective. Uh, but you don't have as much control over your effectiveness. In other words, to really affect them, you run the risk of becoming lethal. You know, you can hit them with the hands and legs and some people will take those hits and keep doing what you don't want them to do. And some people will fall to the ground and, and, and buckle, but it's very much a pain compliance. When you get into uh, stick grappling, you're actually physically taking control of them. Uh, it doesn't have the optic of you, you know, repeatedly beating them. But, and you have much more control over them. So, you know, there's there's definitely uh, a place for it in law enforcement as well. You know, I think this is a good segue um, because, you know, I know that you you rise through the ranks in SIOC, you know, you become a Tuhan in SIOC um, and then you are placed in charge of SIOC tactical group. Um, and a lot of what STG does is not only the physical training, but it's the mental training. And I think one of the most profound lessons that I want people to hear, because I've mentioned it in podcasts, but I want it to come from the source, is the concept of force timing and space and the idea of fight math. Can you kind of mm. give us a rundown of that? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it is a, a very important thing because it's fundamental. It's part of the universals. And anything you can identify, which would be a universal in any area of study, um, and of course, universals will 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 get outside the specific area of study uh, just because they're universals, right? So they'll they will be bridge points uh, transitioning you from one area of study to another. But uh, one of the key universals that we talk about in strategy for uh, training and and for fighting is the force, space, and time. Um, trivia and you know the what we're talking about here is the aspects of conflict these are the aspects of all conflict and i when i say all you could underline all capitalize it and underline it you know meaning um around the boardroom 
you know, people are negotiating, you know, for position uh, in business um, uh, across the litigators table. Um, there are businesses that are uh, competing with each other. Um, there's games that are being played, you know, whether it's chess or checkers. Uh, it doesn't really matter because uh, force, space, and time are the only elements that de- that make up that conflict. By the way, a fist fight in a back alley somewhere between two drunks is the only aspects of that conflict. The only aspects of that conflict are force, space, and time. That covers 100% of it. Every single large-scale tank battle, you know, major world war, force, space, and time is the 100%, the only thing that's involved in the conflict. So, <clears throat> so obviously, we're talking about universals, right? We're talking about broad-reaching, but very specifically different aspects and there are only three right so there's not four um five six it's it's not it's not that complicated now when it gets complicated is when you begin to expand each one of these areas so force force is any way you affect the enemy any way you affect the opponent uh the guy on the other side of the table there's ways that you can affect him Right. Uh, In business, you can affect him legally. You can affect him uh, with leverage, with uh, politics, with there's a whole lot of ways that you can affect that person on the other side of the table. Uh, In a fight, obviously, there's physical violence, there's intimidation um, and there's different ways to manifest all of those things. Um, That's all force. Right. The number of tanks you have, the number of planes you have, the number of rounds that you can put in the air at any one time, that's all force. The number of men that you can put in the fight uh, effectively. You know, we have potential force and we have uh, kinetic force. You know, we have force that is actualized. Um, So force is how we affect the enemy. We have to understand exactly uh, what capability we have when it comes to force. We have to know the difference between our potential force and our actual force. Um, and we have to know what that, what that force can overcome. Like, what can it do, right? How can it affect the enemy? Uh, how dramatically, how long, uh, how long will it take for it to uh, be effective? And then how long can we sustain it, right? So force is how do I affect, how can I affect the enemy? And how will I affect the enemy? And then we have space. So space is movement. Uh, it's, it's re, you know, taking away his freedom of movement and, and giving ourselves uh, freedom of movement. Uh, blocking, um, range, is is part of space like can i affect him with my force from a a distance that he cannot affect me from so that i can rain uh force upon him and he cannot respond with that force 
because his force will, does not have the space capacity or the range to get me, right? So controlling space is like blocking other force multipliers from coming in on his side, right? If I can, if I can lock this guy in a room and all of his buddies are outside and I'm inside with him, um, me controlling that space allows our force uh, maybe to give me greater force than him. So space affects force. A force expects, uh, affects the space as well. But space is the use of space, the use of mobility, and the use of range and um, uh, those aspects of it. Controlling all that, right? That's space. Then you have time. And here's where some people kind of get the wrong impression. Uh, they think that time is like linear time on a watch or something like that. And that that is time. But when we talk about time, what we're talking about is initiative. We're talking about who's going first, who's going second, who is controlling the tempo of the right to use a chess term. You know, uh, tempo is the term that they use in chess for the person who's dictating how things are going right now, because they make a move on the board. The person may have another move that they want it to do, but they can't do that move because they need to respect the move that was just made. The move that was just made affects them in a way that they now have to use their turn to counter that or try to mitigate the power of that of that move on the board we would say that that person controls time at that point right they're the feeder and we have feeder and receiver the feeder is the one who controls the flow of events and uh, it's very important and that is the time element of the four space and time so we want to at least control two of these so that we can gain the third and upon gaining all three, you have victory. That's what victory looks like. Victory is controlling force, space, and time in any conflict. Hey guys, we're just going to interrupt this podcast for a second to uh, bring you one of our sponsors, actually two of our sponsors. And the first one is Ketone IQ. And Ketone IQ is from the company HVMN. And HVMN is a company I got tuned into two years ago when I met the company owner at one of our courses. And what a cool dude, fellow Asian. So shout out to, to Jeffrey. And uh, let me let me just say a few things about, about Ketone IQ and the whole uh, way that it's going to help you. So go to Ketone IQ at HVMN and use the promo code FIELDCRAFT and that'll save you 20%. Again, that's H-V-M-N, use the promo code FIELDCRAFT. And with Ketone IQ, we'll say that ketosis is an interesting diet, and but this isn't really a, a diet product. It's an energy boost without sugar or caffeine. And anytime that you just need that little extra pick-me-up, well, this is gonna be your product. Now, what's really cool about H-V-M-N is the company HVMN actually stands for Health Via Modern Nutrition. And Jeffrey, who I mentioned before, is uh, one of those dudes who really likes to, you know, squeak out a whole bunch of human performance 
whenever he can. Like we were on a course together and this guy is, is doing pull-ups when everyone is just spent and exhausted. So I'm just going to say that it's not a diet product. It's an energy product. And I think you're going to really like it. So go to ketone or look up ketone IQ and that's at HVMN. The other product I want to bring up is the company or the other brand is 10,000. So 10,000.com is going to be the, the website. You can use the coupon code Fieldcraft. That'll get you 15% off of your order. I've used the 10,000 brand for uh, hiking and I've used it on a bunch of runs in my neighborhood. I love their stuff. Uh, they've actually got really good shorts that have like an internal kind of like, I don't call it spandex. I don't think anyone wears spandex anymore, but basically it's a, it's a really good set of running shorts, the ones that I have, and they've got awesome uh, t-shirts that are very good for wicking. So. Here's a couple more things about 10,000. This is a no bullshit product. 10,000 works with top strength uh, and endurance athletes to co-design, test, and develop their gear. So you know that before anything, it's heavily, heavily vetted before it shows up to your door. So you can kit up now and get 15% off of your purchase if you go to 10,000.cc. I said 10,000.com before. It's actually 10,000.cc. And I probably should say it like twice again so you remember it. 10,000.cc, 10,000.cc. And enter the code FIELDCRAFT. That is 10,000. That is T-E-N-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D dot C-C. Enter the code FIELDCRAFT and you'll get 15% off. They offer free shipping, free returns, lifetime guarantee. So get off your ass, get the highest quality, best fitting, most comfortable training shorts you've ever worn from 10,000. Boom. There we go. All right, guys, let's get back to this podcast. Here we go. You know, it's interesting. I think the three examples that come up in my discussions with people, I say the sucker punch, right? Sucker punch is number one. I'm like, you let someone in to your space they go first and they hit you blindsided. Guess what? Four right. space time. Uh, yep. And then I say the football blitz, right? You throw everything at the quarterback. You stress him out um, because suddenly all this force is coming. You're closing out his space and now you're forcing him to to throw or, or hand it off or run it before he's ready to. Um, right. And then I even use the example. I'm like, even a kid taking a quiz in, in school, you know, like the space he's not going to be able to control because he's got to take the quiz in the classroom, but he can study ahead of time and he can study with enough time, you know, or, yep. or, or if it's a quiz where it's like, Hey, you can bring in a, a sheet of notes. Well, you better bring that force with you, you know? And, yep. and granted like, yeah, you can't control the space in that case, but if you bring those two to three, the space shouldn't matter because you know, you're, you're prepared ahead of time with the right gear, you know, yeah. and, and you and, can do it anyway. You know, yeah, exactly. And, and, and here's the thing, what defines most fights? Well, it's a fight. First of all, if it's a fight, you probably don't control all three, right? Because if you controlled all three, it wouldn't even be a fight, right? We wouldn't even, we wouldn't even, there's no conflict at that point, right? You just steamroll over somebody. The fact that we're talking about fights means that you don't control all three. There's enough of a lack of control that uh, it, we now have a fight. So I maybe I only have one of those things. Maybe I maybe I have two. If I have two, I, I, I don't want to lose them while I gain control of the third, right? So, um, but what happens is people will go and try to get initiative Right. They'll try to force the initiative and they'll 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 push it. And 
they may lose space. you right. They may get brought into a, a, a kill zone, an ambush, because they want to get the initiative on the enemy. So they push in, they uh, push into a, a uh, some type of IED or uh, something, and they lose the initiative uh, because, and, and they may lose space, and they may they may lose everything at that point, right? Overwhelming firepower uh, focused on the X. The X was a uh, a booby trap or a a, a roadside bomb, and the space is limited because you can't back out of there. Um, and now they have four space and time and they win. Right. But what put you there? It may be that you were looking to uh, occupy space that maybe you didn't have the force enough to occupy or you didn't have the time element that you needed to occupy it. And we can look at any battle, any fight, any fist fight any major battle or minor battle. And we can look at it from an aspect of force, space, and time. And what's important is taking the time to analyze these things because our takeaways, our ability to glean from these conflicts, something appreciable that we can train and avoid doing wrong in the future, we have to be able to analyze it. And we have to be able, and you can obviously analyze situations before you go into them so that you make better decisions, but also after situations, you can analyze them and say, what did we drop there? What, what did we not have that we needed to have? And the thing is um, you have to have terms. You have to have an understanding of the, of the different aspects of the situation to even have that conversation. So for space and time, uh, we begin to break down the elementary like universal parts of conflict so that we can then analyze things. We can become smarter uh, on these topics. And, um, and in the future, control force, control space, and control time. I think what That's, happens a lot of the time is, is people will say, well, I don't even know what happened, right? And they, they, right. they get so overwhelmed with emotion or... Yeah, they just throw up their hands. Yeah, right. Like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you can probably yep. you can probably distill it down to one of those three or two of those yeah. three. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of times people are very emotional, you know, about that. So that's another thing that we talk about in LOT is really separating our logical from our emotional side, and um, so that we can even have that conversation, right? Because you can't even have that conversation if you can't admit that you made mistakes or you're so emotional about it you can't talk about it. Uh, and then once we are logical enough that we can talk about it, we then have to have the language installed to really analyze it. And uh, that's, you know, that's what we're trying to do in LOT. And that's why we have conversations about four space and time so that people it's not so vague. Right. It's let's put names to everything. Let's let's. So we are very clear about what we're talking about, you know, so it's very important to do that. Um, and I don't want the listeners to think that all we do is just talk about, you know, LOT and, and all we do is just run hypotheticals. Uh, right. Like STG right. is known, right? STG contractors are known for their capability. And 
I don't know what you're able to share uh, in terms of like what sets STG guys apart, you know, as role players or, or in the functions that the guys have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we started training uh, Naval Special Warfare guys uh, in the mid uh, to late 90s. Right. Um, and then after 9-11, so in the early 2000s, uh, the same guys that we were training uh, in the late 90s uh, were into their careers and 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 everything went into high order as far as um, deployment cycles and everyone's going overseas and work. And there was a lot of fighting, obviously. Right. So um, those same operators you know would bring us in to train their various teams and units and you know we we got a chance to work with the guys at bragg uh and we worked with guys in in different special operations groups uh the special forces down at bragg we worked with guys at at tag we worked with guys at um in the navy uh both in regular teams and the guys at, at Damnak. Uh, and over, you know, 20 years of working with these guys, um, obviously a lot of those guys uh, ended up, you know, deploying and doing their, their 20 years or 20 some years and um, have retired out of those places. And they, uh, want to continue to train people and we have a uh you know we train them through their, their career and uh they come on as subject matter experts with us uh smes and uh so then when we continue to go and train uh guys who are getting who are deploying uh, we have guys with us uh in our instructor cadre who have done the job have gone through the training it has worked for them in in many different ways throughout their career, so they're a great uh, addition to our instructor cadre. Um, and you know, I mean, we have learned as much from them as they ever learned from us, uh, certainly, uh, because one of the things with SDG is we start off with an LOT, right? A, a logical order of looking at training and obviously of implementing training. You know, that's one of the, one of the key things is how do we implement uh, training in the most effective way? But the actual techniques, uh, which are related to the tactics being used, uh, have to be developed by the end user. They really, uh, it doesn't make sense for, for us to develop them. Uh, because they're the ones with this very intimate, specific knowledge of what's going on and also how it's evolving. Now, of course, we're there with them, so we're getting a chance to see it firsthand. But uh, the process has to be organic. In other words, the operator comes to us and says, hey, this is something that we have concerns about or this is something that we're looking to accomplish uh, or this is something we're a capability we're looking to have. And we would like to work in that direction. Uh, 
Sometimes it's a case study of something that actually happened overseas. Sometimes it's an understanding of where things will be uh, progressing to. And then we begin to develop curriculum that fits that model for them. And then when they get off from deployment, we have a training progression that we've built for them to uh, upgrade their their software to um, to fit into this new paradigm. And um, in that way, over 20 years, the curriculum has organically shifted with the shifting battle space. So as the enemy begins to do this or that, or we have new missions sets that need to be accomplished, um, slowly the evolution of the curriculum matches that. And it's very organic that way. And the end user is always getting the most current um, problem uh, solving uh, formulas. And, you know, in that way, I mean, I don't build it. You know, reality builds this. Like what's happening downrange builds what the curriculum is going to look like. It's not my, you know, I'm not dictating it. I am watching and analyzing and constructing the evolution to match the reality that we're seeing. And that's the key to it. And so the curriculum that SDG is running uh, obviously has the SIOC LOT filter and lens and formulas uh, in the curriculum. But the but reality is what we're using as the mirror for what we're what we're looking at. So that's unique to us. As far as I know, no one else is really doing that. They are they usually have a set curriculum that they're trying to uh, push. They have, you know, one or two, you know, instructors that come in and kind of selling their new sling swivel or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some other gadget or whatever they were trying to do. Um, and you know, it's, it's very egocentric. In other words, that instructor, whoever he is, uh, is like the superstar coming in to teach you his stuff that sells his merchandise. Um, and, and that's like, you know, I'm kind of like making it sound you know, probably sleazier than it is, but um, we want to have good training for the operators. The operators are going to develop this curriculum based on their experiences overseas. It's constantly going to be changing because the battle space is constantly changing and uh, it will organically grow over 20 years. So there is a certain obsolescence that happens with a curriculum, if it's not organic, it no longer is relevant after a certain amount of time. Uh, the main, the way you maintain relevancy is you mirror reality because reality changes a certain way. And we are looking to counteract or mitigate the negative reality that we have in combat. So if, as long as we use reality as our guidepost, uh, we're always going to be on the road. I got to so, ask you this follow-up then. So yeah, for the past 20 years, right, we've been fighting the the great war on terror against yes. folks who are uh, not armored up, not using night vision, right? Like they don't have the same tactics. 
but now there's this potential threat of a near peer war. In your yeah. opinion, how do you think the training will change to to fight that? You know, to, yeah. to engage in that. You know, the operators that we have talked with and worked with and are very close with have been looking at this uh, for a long time. Now, I, I wouldn't say that our military in general is looking at it. Uh, in, 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 but the guys that we work with are at the very tip of the spear and they're very intelligent. And, you know, most of them do a lot of training with us on LOT, logic order of thought, and, uh, you know, analyze things very clear headedly. And we have had that conversation, I would say, I don't know, mid like 2006, 2007, we started having that conversation quite a bit of, yeah, this is working right now, but this is what we need to be considering. So they've been looking at it on those in that micro, you know, obviously the operators at the tip of the spear have been looking at, at that. Um, the rest of the military is very receiver based and very conventional and they don't necessarily do that, but um, it's it, it's a real concern. And history has shown us um, that when you focus on the lessons that were learned in the last war, without adding to the analysis the progression. In other words, if you're static in the way you look at any pinpoint uh, of the last war and you fixate on that, that's what kills you in the next war, right? Because everyone's looking at that, right? So everyone can see one move ahead in the game, right? It's, it's, that's not hard to do. Um, they know that you're going to do that, right? So when the French built the Maginot Line um, and you know, the Germans went around it, you know, or, or flew over it in gliders. Mm -hmm. And like the, the, the amount of time that was spent on those fixed fortifications uh, were, you know, uh, like, like, I think it was Patton who said that fixed fortifications are monuments to man's stupidity. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, once we see it, we just go around it, we go over it, we go under it. So, um, and that's just an example of, you know, some major uh, push, which was to develop, you know, something to counter, you know, trench warfare. Hey, we're not doing trench warfare now, you know, and why would you think that we would still be doing that after everyone's experience with it, right? So the thing is, everyone's changing. You need to be able to project into the future. And our special operators can definitely do that. Um, the guys at the very top. Um, the bureaucracy that is our conventional military uh, mixed in with the politicians uh, really limit our ability to do that. And we become a receiver rather than a feeder. So uh, we're basically reacting to things, and um, and that is disastrous for any uh, any fighting 
uh, unit or group or country. So, you know, I, I, I would answer the question of like the guys that we work with have looked at that and have, and have answers for it. But, uh, in general, I think, uh, the conventional forces do not. And, uh, you know, so that's, that's, and and we can see it with the hypersonic missile Mm -hmm. issues, right. Um, uh, the fact that, uh, you know, the rest of the world moved with that technology and we stayed on, on, uh, coin and, uh, and, uh, counterinsurgency, um, stuff. And, um, you know, it's just not the same. Yeah. Same it, do, it doesn't bode well for the future. Um, it doesn't, you know, of course people have pointed out that problem and we're looking to catch up and, and America, uh, can do that. Right. We, we, we have the ability to catch up because, you know, we still have the, the technical legs if we need them, you know, um, it's just that we don't use them the way we, uh, we could, you know, but so we're, yeah. we're, we're running long, but I got a couple more questions. I, I just have to ask, um, yes. because I, I want just your take on it. Now yeah. we we've been at events where we've downloaded all the gear that we carry that can, you know, puncture, perforate, lacerate, all those good things. And yeah. you've always been a good source for everyday carry items. And you're very passionate about what you carry and how you stage it on your body. Can you yes. kind of give your recommendations for the layperson or someone who wants to be uh, an asset or more capable for what they should carry every day? Yeah. I mean, you know, I understand not everyone wants to carry a pistol. Uh, you know, some people are opposed to it, you know, uh, the use of a, those same people, you know, if they had to stab someone in, uh, to death would have, if they can't shoot, if you can't shoot somebody, you certainly can't stab someone emotionally. Right. So it's a different, you know, it's a different thing, but, um, Number one, get your mind right. Get your get yourself squared away. And when I say that, I mean understand what your job is, right? If you're a man, your primary mission as default, default mission is to protect the people around you. Um, and, you know, number one, you're probably uh, stronger, more capable uh, physically. Uh, and it may require that physical capability. Uh, you're also more expendable. So, you know, those things all wrap into you being the guy who in the middle of the night goes and, and, and checks out what the, what the noise was. Uh, so get your mind right about that. Right. And what tools do you need to do your job effectively? Right. So, you are going to be called for uh, situations that require some form of violence, right? And now some people are opposed to that. And, but I would say to those people, is there anything that you would fight for? If there, is there anything that you would fight for? Everyone on the planet probably has something that they would fight for, right? Yeah, even their own life. It's not your life, it's someone else's life. Sure. Okay. 
well, why aren't you training then? <laughs> right? If, <laughs> if you have something that you could you would fight for, but you don't train, that doesn't make any sense. It's illogical. Right. So if if you have something you would fight for, by the way, 100 percent of everyone on the planet, 100 percent of everyone on the planet should be training them. If you have something to fight for, why would you not be training for that? So that's getting your mind right now. We get that down. OK, yeah, training. It's important. Got it. All right. What do you need to do your job? Well, I need to be able to stop people from doing things. And to do that, I need to be able to do that things to them, which are violent, right? Stop violence and do violence. Okay. So we need to, we need to do both of them, right? I need to be able to mitigate the violence that someone's already done. So I need to have medical uh, training. Okay. You know, simple, basic T triple C, you know, first, first guy on the sea, first responder kind of, uh, you know, keep people alive, uh, keep the blood inside the body, um, make sure people can breathe, um, you know, and, and the simple, simple stuff. Right. So you should have a tourniquet on you. Uh, every single person that trains with me has a tourniquet on them, um, at least one. And we need to know where that tourniquet is. I run my tourniquet in my, um, cargo pocket on my right hand side and uh i sometimes run one in my cargo pocket on my left hand side usually i if i'm not running one that means that someone didn't have one and i wanted them to have one so i i give away probably you know 30 tourniquets a year just because <laughs> yeah. people don't have them um so i put i have tourniquets in in my cargo pockets um so one in my right, one in my left, and the first one I give away is the one in my left. So the, the right I never give away. <clears throat> um, I carry a flashlight on me. Uh, I carry at least one flashlight. Um, now I have a flashlight on my pistol, and I have a flashlight um, in my left front pocket of my pants. And uh, I like stream lights. Um, and uh, uh, I run a rechargeable uh, stream light flashlight, my front right. Um, I run two blades. I run a utility blade, which is a folder in my front. Uh, I'm sorry, the flashlights in my front left. My uh, front right is my folder, right? So uh, that's something I use just for work, uh, open mail and stuff around the shop. Um, I carry a full size Amtac Magnus. And, um, I also carry, uh, on occasion, a head honey, a head hunter, uh, dirty and, uh, have carried a rat for my utility blade as well. So, but I always want to have at least a couple blades on me. Uh, that will be reverse grip draw on the left-hand side. Um, I carry a Glock 17. Um, I don't really like the smaller pistols. Um, I would carry one if that's all I could carry or get away with, of course. Um, I carry uh, 
a, a Glock 17 with a red dot and a light and laser combo on the uh, on the rail. Um, obviously, I carry everything inside the waistband, concealed, sometimes double concealed, but um, that's typically. I always want to have. Uh, I carry about two thousand dollars cash on me uh, all the time, uh, two to five thousand, uh, usually one or two thousand right now, but uh, just because it's uh, it's bulky. But um, a cell phone, obviously, and my wallet, and uh, that's the stuff that I will not. You know, now the support stuff for that is you need to have good pants. You have to have the pockets to carry it. Uh, you have to have a good belt, right? I'm a belt and suspenders kind of guy, so I, I will run belt and suspenders. And, uh, you know, um, a cover shirt, you know, that's that's going to not flap around in the wind too much, like a good cover shirt. Um, I usually run ball cap. And I think it's important. Like these things are, are you know, everyone's like, oh, this guy's talking about EDC and he's talking about his belt. Yeah, that's important. Like what kind of belt you're running, you know? Uh, a good ball cap is important, you know? Um, sometimes I'll carry a Trapo, uh, which is a uh, improvised, although this is not improvised, it's a uh, purpose-built, uh, impact weapon that's flexible um, and uh, we also use everything that I mentioned uh, combatively so the tourniquet we will use also to fight with um, the flashlight we will use also to fight with obviously uh, so um, all of these things will, will work in a combative sense as well as their primary intended purposes so I don't know if that's, is that a good enough rundown? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the funny thing is, is like, as I'm sitting here in the podcast studio, I've got a Glock on me. I've got my blade on my left hand side. Like, you know, and, and people wonder, they're like, well, why, why do you have it all staged like that? And I'm like, it's pretty much standard across the board with our guys, you know, it like, is. Like it is Glock mags. I can throw a Glock mag to someone. I mean, I flew into Idaho to meet up with you and Bill and those guys. And I was like, Bill, I need yep. a mag. And he pulled the mag out of his door, you know, and he's like, here you go. You know, yep. like. It's in that type of thing, even if you guys aren't into, say, like what we do, have it among your friends, like build your own yeah. community and have standardized gear and, and standard SOPs yeah. of where you put stuff, Absolutely. you know? Um, I, yeah. And I also have fire on me. Mm -hmm. I always have um, I always have a lighter on me. Um, I don't smoke or, or do any of that stuff, but I always want to have fire on me. And uh, I run a fire sheath. Uh, mm -hmm. with some, you know, some cotton balls in, in, um, in petroleum, um, you know, in, in behind it and stuff. So, you know, that's something, you know, uh, I don't want to not mention that when I'm talking to you or oh, you'll, <laughs> you'll be disappointed in me, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, I have used, I, I've used that in, in real, like, uh, it's surprising. It's it's like a flashlight to some degree. You don't realize how often you're going to need something like that until you carry one and it's available and you're like, oh, this will solve this problem, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know. 
uh, once you carry a flashlight for a while, you realize, I don't even know how I got around not carrying one, you know? Um, but while, while, um, while we're on that, can you talk about, because, uh, DJ Shipley, I, I talked to him the other, like, let's see, it was probably February. It was probably February. He yeah. came in and I showed him my stream light with the mod that he has that he learned from yeah. you. Can you just talk yeah. about that mod real quick? Cause uh, that's just a funny connection with the GBRS group guys and, and yeah. with all of us. Yeah. DJ, you know, he trained with us when he was, when he was in and um, you know, he's, a, he was a very, very focused um, guy, a guy. Like he was never, um, he was a hundred percent focused on, on his training and, and getting things right. Um, but yeah, we, we do a small bungee that we attach to the flashlight in a couple different ways. We were using some shrink tubing. So some rubberized, uh, shrink tubing and some other things in order to, uh, attach this small bungee and the bungee should be, uh, we, we actually first started doing it with, uh, dirty, uh, one of our SMEs, um, he, I think he did it with a hair tie, you know, <laughs> with one of his, his daughters or wife's hair ties, but, uh, it's just a small bungee that will fit around about two, your, your two middle fingers, right? Your, your ring finger and your middle finger. And we can slide our fingers through those, that bungee. You can use rubber bands and you can use some other things. Um, so I still use that light with the thumb button, you know, the thumb switch, uh, in like that reverse grip. But, uh, if my hand gets knocked or I need to open my hand or change my grip uh, is, uh, on the, still on my hand, right. It's, it's not very easy to drop. Um, and, um, it's funny because, uh, uh, one of our guys, Justin Garcia, uh, uh, was driving from the Bronx to, 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 to Pennsylvania up in the mountains in a rainstorm on his motorcycle and um, his headlights went out oh like a, a few miles from home and uh, in the rainstorm, extremely dangerous situation. And he drove the last so many miles uh, holding his, his stream light <laughs> in reverse grip like where his headlight would be and, uh, and was able to get, to get home. Um, and he said, if he didn't have the, um, the bungee, uh, to assist him, he, he wouldn't have made it. It was so cold and wet and, uh, and everything that he, he just wouldn't have been able to do it. So it's a weird, weird little situation. Uh, but he was saying like that saved him, you know, that, that little bungee, but often I've, I've had it where, uh, I would drop it or it, it just wouldn't be very functional without, um, without having that little extra ability to hold it. So I'm surprised that a manufacturer of flashlights hasn't like, uh, you know, made something that works, uh, like that. But, uh, I think DJ is doing something. So that's, that's good. You know? Yeah. I'll tell you something like, and, and for the listeners guys, if you haven't picked up on it, there's so many lessons you can glean 
And I can tell you that some of the best experiences of my life have been through training and through through being around folks that are on the same mission in terms of like wanting to to level up their skill sets, be that better protector. And 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 I'll tell you something, like there, there's so much more we could talk about. I mean, we didn't we could just go and go and go, but um what do you th- what what are your final words? Like if you had to leave the listener with like a message or 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 like a charge, like what would you suggest? And then I'll I'll t- tell everyone where they can find you and SDG and Yeah, I mean, you know, become proactive in your own training, you know, your own development. Um, you know, how do you do that? Well, first of all, you need to look at things logically. So um you don't want to have an emotional development of a plan right you want to have a logical development of a plan so you need to separate that a lot of people think they are already doing that but that we could all work on that even more um become a professional in whatever you do and primarily every man out there and i'm just i'll just speak for the men you all are bodyguards you all run a protection detail right you run a protection detail for the most important clients in the world, right? They're your children, it's your wife, it's your elderly parents, it's what the people that you love, right? You are the head of the protection detail. Start acting like it. Train, think about what you're going to do, progress, make sure that you pass on those skills to the next generation because your sons are going to grow up and they're going to be expected to do the same thing for their family. So, um, you know, get in, get involved, start looking to where the training is. Obviously, I mean, Fieldcraft has amazing, uh, curriculum of, of trainers and, and, uh, of, of so many different topics, but you know, there's a lot of people out there. You could, you can get out there you can find it, you know, get out there and do some training. Uh, learn to use the tools that are part of your your profession, which is you know the protector. So and that's uh, that's all I got. <laughs> and where can people find STG? Because you're still running the Warrior One O pistol courses, right? Yeah, I still run pistol courses. Um, we still do the Modern Warrior Conference every year, mm-hmm. um, which is Bill Rapier, uh, Justin Garcia, Master Chim, and um, Harley Elmore, Tuhan Harley Elmore. Um, and we have guest instructors that come in as well. And we run that, uh, each year. And that's, that's an amazing event. Uh, we're going to be, uh, running our next one in June, uh, coming up. Um, and, um, you know, you can look, uh, you can, you can check out Bill Rapier's, uh, website uh, at Amtac, uh, Amtac shooting, uh, for, for that. Uh, you know, we are constantly running courses around the country. A lot of times for law enforcement, uh, obviously we do a lot of training with the government and with the mill, but uh, we do civilian training. And and I have some people who train with me, you know, on a one-on-one basis for specific uh, type skill sets. So, you know, yeah, we're still doing it. And, uh, you know, uh, you can find us through the SIAC website. Uh, you know, there's usually a SIAC school somewhere 
uh, near you if you if you live in a major city. Um, we're not everywhere yet, but you know uh, we probably have I don't know how many affiliated schools, uh, quite a few in, in in the U.S. and in Europe. So you know there's uh, Sayak.com is uh, is where you would you would check that out. So awesome. Yep. We'll stay on for a bit uh, after we get off, but uh, guys, please, please check out uh, check out the guys that have made me who I am. Uh, guys like Tuan Tom, uh, Tuan Harley, you know all the the tribe because it will make you a better person. So uh, so thanks so much for for coming on, and guys, for those of you listening, thanks so much for tuning in. <laughs>